0: Hello, this is Annie McLaughlin for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and workers' stories. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Today's program catches up with the Senate Inquiry into the exploitation of workers in Australia on work visas. The Inquiry has been travelling the continent, collecting information about the 7-Eleven Wages scandal and finding that when you lift a rock, you never know what other unsavoury things you will find. But first, the history-making agreement in Port Kembla between Blue Scope Steel and Steel Workers.
1: In terms of the depth of the crisis, put it this way, one country, mainly China, now produces more steel than the rest of the world, the entire world combines. To give you an example, India has had to put emergency protective tariffs, or what's called safeguards, on its steel production, and it's one of the major producers in the world because of the uh, oversupply and the dumping of steel on its market. Now, if India, with its levels of labour costs, cannot compete with this dumped and uh, unfairly uh, marketed or sold or traded steel from China, what chance have we got here in Australia?
0: Arthur Warris, Secretary of the State and Labour Council in the south-west coast of New South Wales, giving a little bit of background to a vote by workers at the Blue Scope Steelworks in Port Kembla on November eighteenth, agreeing to a wages freeze and the loss of 500 jobs. What was at stake, according to Arthur, was Australia's capacity to produce steel, full stop. Blue Scope Steel's future was never in doubt. Blue Scope is a multinational company which operates in 17 countries. The Australian steel making arm of its business in the present climate is unprofitable. The company began the year announcing that it needed to cut $50 million from operating costs or it would close. It stood back and waited for government and workers to give the concessions which they needed. I asked Arthur Rorris what happened and what was on the workers' minds when they were voting to keep the plant operational.
1: Let me get a couple of things straight about the particular deal that was struck there and the massive sacrifices uh, that those workers made to ensure that the steel industry survives. We are not in the habit of uh, taking money out of the pockets of workers to give to the shareholders of multinational companies. That is not what we would consider to be our objective or our modus operandi. Um, in the union movement, particularly in the south coast and the Warren with those steelworks. Um, the massive hit and the bitter pill that the workers had to swallow, they did for one reason and one reason only, and that was because they realised that if they had voted no in that agreement and the steelworks shut, which it was going to do, there was only two choices in the matter, if the steelworks had shut they would not only be losing their jobs, which would be a considerable hit in itself, but they would lead to be leading to the loss of six, 7,000 more jobs in the broader community. Everyone from the hairdressers to the coffee shop uh, attendants through to the uh, uh, property, retail, even health and education and other things. And that was a reality. And our region has been through this before. It went through it in 1981 where we lost 15,000 jobs in order to keep the steelworks alive then, when it was the drivers were mechanisation and other things. Our region is very well-versed in sacrifice uh, in order to give others a chance. And the chance that these workers were seeking to give was not for themselves, it was for their kids and for the rest of the community, the ones that weren't in the room voting. That's why they have earned tremendous respect we didn't do this for the company, we did it for the community and we did it for other working people and for the steel industry so that others may have the opportunity to continue with the steel industry and that's why it, is such a, um, it was such an important and historic occasion. It was a very, very difficult process. Wasn't exactly helped by management either, I've got to say, in terms of how they reacted to the whole thing. So much so that it was ended up being a close vote on one of the sites. But at the end of the day, what carried it through was the fact that um, uh, these workers knew full well that um, a uh, to go the other way would have led to a closure, um, and it would have meant the loss of jobs for many others in the community. It was a selfless act. If the steelworks was located in the middle of the desert or in an ocean, they would have voted it down and we would have told them to as well. We would have recommended a no vote. The only reason that they did this was for everybody else. So in that sense, it's an act of class consciousness. A a big example of people being able to think of their class and uh, I can tell you that for anyone who thinks that this is precedent-setting or that's the way of the world from here on, they're sadly mistaken. This was a once-off and a very unique set of, of uh, conditions and a uh, historical situation in our community where it was the only possible way out of this to minimise the damage for working people uh, throughout the community.
0: What was the provocation? What was the provocation that the uh, management uh, uh, that made it a, such a tight vote in one of the uh, sites?
1: Well, even after the initial, the indicative vote, the in principle vote was carried. Um, management were very, very keen to move in and identify people for uh, for redundancy, and it just happened coincidentally that half of them were getting delegates. Ah. So uh, that was not what we expected after the carrying of the the original vote. It certainly set a lot of people um, uh, thinking about how uh, uh, how Fair Dinkum management were, and uh, it was only the last minute intervention, I guess, from senior management, and we certainly called for that, and uh, the uh, branch. Uh, the branch secretary then at Port Kimberley, uh, Wayne Phillips, um, in terms of arriving at uh, assurances from management on a range of issues including the use of casual labour um, and uh, the targeting of delegates and uh, uh, some shift allowances and other things.
0: Can you tell me about the use of uh, casual labour?
1: Well. They, um, I mean, there was a, uh, uh, a question mark over the use of uh, casual labour, particularly when people were being earmarked for redundancy. That matter was brought to the attention uh, of senior management, and they have now an exchange of letters on that question where um, that can't happen unless there's a, a prior sort of discussions and consultations directly uh, with, uh, with the unions representing those workers. It's just not on to uh, use this as a backdoor way to casualise a workforce. Now, management have indicated that it was only a case of two or three workers in quite a few thousands, so it's only small numbers. It's not the point. Uh, those matters need to be clarified. And we believe that they have been at this point, um, but uh, it's certainly not a carte launch for, uh, uh, for uh, another management agenda. But uh, all of these things, all of these things that were done and the sacrifices—and let's be clear— for many workers, it would represent an effective pay cut of around twenty thousand if you take out their prepaid overtime and other and other payments. That's a massive hit. You know, that's a massive hit. Um, the only way in which um, this is uh, uh, this is going to work is if governments now play their role. Now, you're going, and, up
0: to, you're going up to Canberra, aren't you, right at the moment? Well,
1: I'm just heading into our Parliament House now, where we want um, uh, assurances from government about their tightening of both anti-dumping and safeguards so that the um, illegal dumping of steel does not continue to occur. We're seeking that assurance, um, and we're seeking legislation to ensure that, the, uh, that there is a tightening up of those areas. We also want an undertaking and we want a legislative base of reform that says that Australian taxpayers' dollars, where they, uh, where they procure steel, it should be locally made steel. Um, many countries do this right now. In America, they have a legislated base of at least 50, 50% on everything. In cases of defence and other things, it's 100%. We don't see why, in Australia, we should be doing that bit differently, particularly when uh, the public demand for steel in this country is more than 1.3 million tonnes a year. Now, given that Paul Kemmler produces 2.6 million, we're looking at half. That's half the total, which would be a huge boost Boost for the um, Australian steel industry we've got a range of meetings this is our fourth visit this visit will be seeking commitments or otherwise um, a uh, public statements from both the government the ministers Christopher Pine, the industry minister and the, uh, uh, the opposition uh, the shadow minister Kim Carr and uh, the greens, as well as the crossbenchers, uh, Xenophon, Madigan uh, and others. So we'll be covering all of our bases. We have said to them that we want this to be a multi-party reform. Uh, We don't want to play party politics with this. We think this is in the national interest and must be addressed uh, as a matter of priority. We're getting some supportive noises, if you could say that, from one end all the way through to a commitment to actually move legislation which mandates the use of Australian steel from some of the crossbenchers. So we've got a bit of a range of options here. Our job is to keep this as a a big item, I guess, on the agenda, as it is in the UK and Europe, where they've seen the uh, huge cuts in their steel industries. We want the same sort of pressure on politicians in Australia to ensure we get those reforms. And unless we get those reforms, the sacrifices made by the steel workers will not ultimately protect this steel industry. We find it supremely ironic that this government has managed to stop the boats but not managed to stop the illegal imports of steel and the undermining of the capacity of this country to defend itself. I mean, that's just staggering. Uh, They're stopping people, uh, desperate people on boats on the one hand, but they tell us they've got no real power to stop the dumping of illegal steel. How ironic is that?
0: So I guess you'd say that uh, a government that says, oh, we've done as much as we can, but it's not good enough, is either ineffectual or they they have no real goodwill.
1: The government's been so busy and active on trade agreements with China, and yet... Uh, when it comes to these sorts of questions, we're told it's all a little bit difficult. They're doing what they can. They have tightened up, they say, aspects of their anti-dumping regime, which is true. But at the end of the day, um, the price or the continuing fall in the price of steel and the continuing slide in the proportion of Australian Made steel that is bought by Australian governments tells the true story, and that is that it has been largely ineffective in uh, in doing that. So, you know, I can't see how the TPP and the Australia Free Trade the, the China Australia Free Trade Agreement are actually going to help us here, given that they seek to liberalise liberalising those trading markets even further, rather than actually looking. At the uh, the barriers and the things that make it an unfair trading system. I can't. I understand that at this point in time, um, the government is looking at what can be done with shipbuilding and the subbuilding in South Australia. And I understand that the Minister Christopher Pine hails from that state. Um, we also understand, though, that the second steel producer Arium, which is also based in Adelaide. Um, hasn't really seen much of the benefit of those free-trade agreements. So one wonders um, that if the government, in particular the industry minister there in South Australia, is wanting to keep that goodwill or whatever's left of it, then one would think that they would have an interest in, at least, at the very least, looking at the uh, illegal dumping of steel, if for no other reason than because of the uh, political pressures in his own state. One would think that, but um, uh, we're not assured of anything um, and we hope that we can get some more um, uh, better news and assurances from the government over the next few days.
2: You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and union news. Broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network.
0: You are with me, Annie McLaughlin, on Stick Together, focusing on union news and workers' stories. I, like many other people, have boycotted 7-Eleven with the revelations of wage exploitation widespread in the organisation. Recent evidence given to the Senate inquiry into rorts in the worker visa systems make it clear that knowledge of the rorting went right to the top of the organisation. Greens Senator Janet Rice gives us an update on the Senate inquiry.
2: Seven Eleven um, structure is that they've got over 600 stores across Australia. And they are franchises, so the franchisees are responsible for hiring the staff, but 7-Eleven do the payroll. And the other big difference between 7-Eleven and other franchise operations is that there's a massive amount of the profit from each store actually goes back to 7-Eleven head office. So it's 57% at the moment goes back to head office and head office provide a lot of services for that as I said including including payroll and all of the advertising and all the promotion and and everything else so it was it, given the the level of, of wage fraud that's been uncovered it's absolutely impossible to believe that head office weren't completely complicit and and knowing what was going on and in fact given that their um, what they require of their franchises is to have the stores open 24 hours a day it's very clear when you you look at the level of profits that the stores are making, or the level of income that the stores are getting. Is that it's virtually impossible to be paying staff proper wages to be opening those stores 24 hours a day. So the evidence that was given to us by the whistleblower who had worked in payroll was, you know, very clear that um, 7-Eleven had to know what was going on. That their their payroll system and the um, meant that it was. It, that they they had to know and that when um, wage irregularities and, in fact, visa irregularities had been brought to the attention of head office, she, as the person working in payroll, had basically been told, no, you just pay out what you're being asked to do, don't ask any questions. And it, so there was... A, the evidence that she presented was that there was, there was knowledge about what was going on sort of right up through um, the senior management levels of the organisation.
0: Now, if we move to Pizza Hut, we're now getting evidence from people who... Uh, delivery drivers who are being employed on ABNs. is that correct
2: yes that's as i understand it We're, our inquiry hasn't yet looked at Pizza hut i think that it's probably going to be another one that could potentially be on the on our list of um of companies to be to be looking at because yeah this is another situation where you've got a lot of people who are um from the term from from our perspective of of looking at temporary work visas it's the um overseas workers who are being exploited, but then of course that flows on to domestic workers as well because people can't get a job earning decent money at at these sorts of organisations because um, they're just not willing to pay the wages.
0: There's a very serious issue going on here, quite besides the individual exploitation, but the undermining of the actual whole employment system in Australia.
2: You're absolutely right, Annie. And this is basically, and it's clear that it's so widespread. I mean, Pizza Hut aren't the only other company that's been been suggested that this is going on. I know there's been questions being asked about United Petroleum as well, and other of these these large um, large companies which have got franchises all, um, all over the place. So it really, despite in theory having a you know a wage system that sets out you know. Good quality conditions and and reasonable salary. There's just widespread um, ignoring of, of those conditions and just widespread underhand um, wage fraud that's going on. So it means that for people who are you know seeking to to get a job and to be paid the rate that they that they ought to be being paid, it's virtually impossible. Um, Which means, you know, then then you've got the the situation of people then being blamed for being unemployed when it's impossible to get a job that you're actually being paid a a decent wage for a decent day's work.
0: People who are being exploited go to the uh, Fair Work Ombudsman who basically seems to be giving people advice that uh, they're incapable of actually changing the situation is that a fair statement?
2: Well, look, I think you know the Fair Work Ombudsman. There is there is some success that they have, but to, clearly, what happens at the Fair Work Ombudsman is that the, they look are looking at claims on a case by case basis. When we've got systemic um, issues going on, and at the and then you've got the people, you know, the vast majority of people who don't. Um, they don't take their cases to the Fair Work Ombudsman, and even if they do, the long time frame that's required to get an outcome from the Fair Work Ombudsman makes them give up. And this is, again, particularly in the case if you've got a, a temp- somebody on a temporary work visa, if they're only here for a short period of time, they're not going to pursue that case through the Fair Work Ombudsman. We might say, okay, well that's, you know, those, they're not Australian workers off, they go back to, back to where they, you know, their home countries. But the flow-on effect, as I said, of that, of knowing that you've then got a, a a body of people working in those industries um, who, and it's just accepted practice that they are being underpaid and exploited, and there aren't jobs available then for you know, at, at proper pay and conditions.
0: Now, things have this has been exposed, and I know actually that this has been going on for at least a decade. Is this whole system going to just by default? Undermine uh, the uh, potential for uh, low wage people to actually live a proper existence in Australia because the system, the government, is unable to uh, protect them.
2: Yes, well, um, as, as you say, it's been going on for a long time. Our sanity inquiry is certainly going to have some pretty strong recommendations, I'm sure, as to sort of the exposing, you know, the level of, of exploitation that's going on and make some recommendations to what should happen to, to resolve these issues. But you're right, without actually some firm action and some real, you know, focus of government to say no we're going to put more resources into the fair work ombudsman we're going to put more resources into making sure that the you know wage laws are being complied with without doing that um, things will continue um, to, to go on and there are some people um, clearly in government who are very happy for that to be the case there are also you know there's members of parliament who basically think that yeah it's fine people could should just accept um, the the wage low wage if that's if they're willing to work for that for that low wage well then that's fine you know it's just a contract between them and their employee their employer but it means that it's, it it really undermines our whole system of, of of wages and conditions that we you know in Australia for for um, you know decades and decades we have we have built up but i think you know what our senate inquiry is going to do is to just Open that up, or it has been opening that up, and to see the, the the level of exploitation that's going on, and I think you know your average Australian is going to, to say, well, that's that's not right, it's not appropriate, and that we should have you know much better control, much better regulation, and much better enforcement to 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 stop it from continuing.
0: So we're at a pivotal moment in Australian history, really, aren't we, uh, in relation to uh, the notion of Australian. Uh, equality, because we're increasing and uh, government policy is actually ensuring that they are increasing inequality in our society.
2: Yes, and so while this is going on, that inequality is just being entrenched. And meanwhile, you then have a um, the other strand that's going on here is increasingly you have the expectation that people are going to be working for low wages and Australian workers are saying no I don't you know I I shouldn't be able to I should be able to earn a fair day's pay for a fair day's work and then because they're not willing to work in those very low wage conditions well then you've got the the pressure on then to be having more overseas workers who even if they are officially being paid the the wage we know that because of the power imbalance between people on temporary work visas and the person employing them that if they're not being paid that wage no one's going to be complaining and often their conditions of work um which are even harder to um to to enforce just setting up massive exploitation so i think it, you're right, I mean I think we're at a, at, a, at a pivotal time, having sort of opened up that this is what's going, and at you know a bit of a crossroads as to saying, well are we going to continue down this this road and just continue to replace well play, well paid work with with low paid you know and, and poor conditions, or are we going to say no, this is fundamental to our Australian society and to having a more equitable society that people you know doing basic work deserve to be being paid a decent wage?
0: On a much more practical level, the way our system works is that if the change is going to happen, you'd almost need to have a test case in court and there would have to be a criminal action against uh, employers, effectively, uh, for this behaviour. I mean, I'm not sure if it would be called a criminal action. It would probably fall into a civil action. Nobody will go to jail. Yeah,
2: well, I'm, I'm not... I'm not sure as to what you know what actions would end up can you know, may end up being taken through the courts, but I know you know the the actions of the fair work fair work ombudsman often um, even when they uncover that there's been sort of complete disregard for um, for working conditions and payment, they will often then reach an agreement with the. Um, with the company, rather than to be pursuing them um, publicly and and openly, um, on the basis that it's better to you know have have compensation being paid for the people that have been exploited and allow the company to continue working. And I think I think this we're heading. I think it's going to be more important to actually have some much. Much stronger penalties, and and so that there is a, a, a much a much stronger regime of making sure that these these things don't continue. So I think I think the Seven Eleven um, case is going to be very interesting as to how that ends up. I mean Seven Eleven are trying to manage it at the moment, having set up their own independent inquiry panel um, headed by Alan Fells, who's you know lending his reputation to it, but. Uh, You know, I'm certainly, we as Greens are going to be pushing really hard to make sure that that, um, 7-Eleven and head office of 7-Eleven is absolutely pursued to, you know, to be being held responsible for, for what's been going on.
0: That's it for Stick Together Today. Thanks to you for listening. We have to thank... Arthur Warris from the South West Coast Trades and Labor Council and Green Senator Janet Rice for speaking to us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the community radio network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at stick.together at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. My I'm Zenon Brooklyn, catch you next time.